Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Breslanta Report. My name is Sean Breslin, your host. Thank you so much for tuning in. It is Monday, December the 3rd, 2018, and this is episode number 58. For those of you who have not listened to the Breslanta Report before, we're going to talk a little bit about Atlanta sports today. We have a lot to talk about this week. There was a ton of news. There were some really big games that decided some, well, some short-term futures for these these uh, local franchises and and football teams, specifically Georgia, but also we're going to talk about Atlanta United, the Falcons, and some pretty big moves that the Braves made this week. So we've got a lot to get to this week. First of all, let's get to some particulars. If you haven't yet subscribed, I'm on iTunes and SoundCloud. Regardless of where you're listening, please subscribe to the podcast right now, and a five-star rating would be awesome, much appreciated. And we'll talk about the review at the end of the podcast. But if you wouldn't mind giving me that rating and that subscribe right off the bat, I'd really appreciate it. But as I mentioned, this is going to be a very loaded podcast with a lot of information. We are going to get really quickly into it. Uh, but if you have not visited breslanta.com, please do so. I write things there from time to time as well, and I'll also post the podcast. So if you want to subscribe to breslanta.com, you will get not only my latest podcast episodes, but also my latest writings. So I would appreciate that. As I mentioned, we've got a lot to get to, so let's just jump right into it. We're going to start with Georgia Tech real quick because Paul Johnson announced his retirement this week. He said he will no longer coach the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets football team. It was a really good run for Paul Johnson. He is the fourth winningest coach in Georgia Tech history, and that is a story history. So uh, regardless of what you thought about Paul Johnson, and at times I went both directions on this podcast, uh, I defended him, and I also said there was things that he did that were indefensible. So... Regardless of what you thought about Paul Johnson, uh, a pretty good career at Georgia Tech and a really good career all around considering he won national championships at Georgia Southern, had a had a decent stint at Navy, uh, and just the fact that he took that triple option to multiple places, transformed programs, and most of the time left them for the better. People are going to argue about uh, Paul Johnson at Georgia Tech, but I do think that he made pretty much the most for, of what he had. And that that's that's one thing that you can say about Paul Johnson. But he's got one more game left. He said he will coach the bowl game. And that bowl game we now know is the Quick Lane Bowl. Quick Lane. Well, I think that's like an oil changing place. I have no idea. But it sounds like a place where you go to get your oil changed, right? Maybe it's a bowling alley. I have no idea. But that game will be played the day after Christmas in Detroit at Ford Field against the University of Minnesota. So, if you're not in on the Georgia Tech, uh, the bloggers and the the fan base, uh, they are pissed. They are very upset that this is the the way the ACC has done them in Paul Johnson's final game. It's going to be tough to get to. Uh, they leapfrogged a couple teams over Georgia Tech that finished behind them in the standings. Teams that the, that the Yellow Jackets beat, uh, they put them in better bowl games closer to Atlanta. So really frustrating there. And I, I hear your gripes, Georgia Tech fans. That's that's kind of bull crap. But uh, really good career from Paul Johnson. And a solid stint at Georgia Tech. We'll see who they we'll see who they look to next for their next head coach. Um, you know the 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 rumors right now are Ken Wisenhunt. I don't think that's the right way to go. I would much rather get a guy that's like an up and comer or somebody like that. Uh, Brian Bohannon at Kennesaw State, former Georgia Tech assistant. I would give him a serious look because the things he's done at, at Kennesaw State in just you know three or four years time is. That's remarkable. Yet again, they're in the Division II playoffs, or 1AA, FCS. They're in the FCS playoffs again, and they're a high seed. And this is a program that started like three years ago. I would give him a serious look because I think he might leave if Georgia Tech comes calling. But that's just my personal opinion. Uh, I think they're going to end up settling on Ken Wisenhunt, which I think is not a good move. But 
We'll see how it pans out. Now, in a New York Minute, everything changed for this local team, and I'll tell you who that is and what happened. But first, let's get to this SEC championship game. Georgia losing to Alabama. Really tough loss. Uh, What was it? 35-28 was the final score. Basically the same story again. Uh, Georgia Georgia had a huge lead against Alabama in the Benz in a game that really, really mattered for them. Uh, This wasn't the national championship game, but this was – you know, in all for all intents and purposes, this was the game that they would have had to win to get into the playoff, and they will not be in the college football playoff. So let's talk about the game first before we talk about the playoff situation. You had the twenty-eight to fourteen lead. You squandered it by scoring no points at all in the final twenty-seven or so minutes of the game. Ryan Brown of JWX says Alabama and Georgia have played for one hundred and twenty minutes of regulation the last two seasons. It's the equivalent of two games. He said Georgia has led or, or been tied for 118 minutes and 56 seconds of that time, and they are 0-2. So they have not led Alabama for just one minute and four seconds of two combined games, and they haven't won a single one of those games. That right there tells you, and, and we saw it in Super Bowl 51, the Falcons and the Patriots, what you see with these teams is a patience from the team that's been there before and just a, a joyful exuberance from the team that hasn't been there. And anytime you're playing against a team that is Alabama's caliber or in the Falcons case, the Patriots caliber, you can't expend energy celebrating what you've already done because that team is focused. That team is waiting for you to flinch. And in every single one of those instances, both of those Alabama Georgia games and Super Bowl 51, it feels like those teams got too amped against the team that had been there before, and that was the that was the downfall. Georgia let Alabama slip away twice late in the game. The Falcons just flat out ran out of steam in the fourth quarter, and the Patriots were waiting for that. So what you're seeing with these teams now is this this understanding that okay, we've been there before, and we're going to get back there again, and we're going to probably win this game, but we just have to stay patient now. There are some things you can say in this game that that were different than the other two that I just used as examples. If Tua Tagovailoa doesn't get hurt in this game, uh, Georgia probably wins because Tua was doing nothing, and he was he had, he was the, the the best case scenario for Georgia. Keeping him healthy was should have been a priority because he wasn't doing anything. He was throwing his Heisman away in this game. He couldn't he couldn't complete a pass. He couldn't convert a third down, and. Georgia did something really brilliant this game, and I noticed it early on, and they just kept doing it. And it, I think this might be the blueprint for teams. Now, you have to have Georgia's speed on defense, but they were doing this delayed blitz against Tua where the line, they would, you know, their fastest linebacker on the field would wait for a second or two at the line of scrimmage, and then he'd go. He would find a hole and he would go. He wouldn't just show blitz and go. He would hang back and then he would go a couple seconds later. And with Tua, he's got that long delivery, which is going to be a big problem in the pros. But he's got that that super long Tebow-ish delivery where it takes a while for him to get the ball out. And if you got somebody coming at you and you know you can't get the ball out quickly, that's going to be a problem. So I think that what Georgia did there was was really smart. And I think that, that can really pay off if you're if you have a defense that's fast enough to get to Tua like that. Uh, it, again, it's easier said than done. Um, you know, Vanderbilt's not going to be able to do that. But when you've got the kind of athletes that Georgia does, that was a brilliant plan by Kirby Smart. Now, obviously, it ended up backfiring because you hurt him. You injured him. You knocked him out of the game. Jalen Hurts comes in and, and plays the hero and wins the game. You know, people sometimes forget that Alabama has a guy on their bench at quarterback that was like 28-2 and two as a starter. So, you know, 
getting him in the game isn't exactly a win. Uh, but but Georgia did some things in this game. They just they just couldn't hold on. And that that fourth and eleven call for midfield is what doomed them. I don't know what they were doing there. As as great as the scheming was uh, leading into this game to stop Tua, it seemed like the in game decisions were just as bad. Uh, they were equally as bad. If you have fourth and eleven, and your plan is to throw it to somebody and they're no longer open, and you have timeouts, and Alabama has their defense on the field as if they're expecting you to fake the punt, uh, why not take a timeout there? And I think that I'm preaching to the choir because I think Georgia fans have been saying this all weekend, but you have to make Jalen Hurts as good as he was and as good as he can be. You have to make him go 80-plus yards in less than three minutes to score the game-winning touchdown or at least get the game-winning field goal. You can't give them the ball on the 50 and expect him to not pick up 20 yards and kick a game-winning field goal at the very least. Of course, they marched all the way in and scored a touchdown. But Jalen Hurts has to go more than 20 or 30 yards to win that game in that situation. You have to do that. Yes, he he did score a couple of touchdowns. He did lead a couple of good drives before that. But, I mean, it's Jalen Hurts. It's, your, it's the backup quarterback. You have to make him go the length of the field to beat you. You can't just hand him the ball in the 50. Alabama is too good to allow that to happen. So that, that was the frustrating part for me. And I know the frustrating part for Georgia fans was being left out of the college football playoff, being ranked fifth. Personally, I don't have any issue with it. I just don't. Uh, Georgia lost the two toughest games on their schedule. Oklahoma only lost once. They lost by three points on a neutral field. They lost the, the regular season matchup against Texas. That was at the uh, Texas State Fair. That was the Cotton Bowl or whatever you want to call it. So they lose once by three. And if you remember that game, Texas had a massive lead. And Oklahoma, if they had another five minutes of game time, they would have won that game. They, they had stormed back. They had all the momentum. Texas just barely held on. I wasn't too, I wasn't too upset about that loss from Oklahoma. I thought that if that was going to be their only loss, they were going to be in the playoff for sure. They get Texas in a rematch in the Big 12 championship game, and they win. So the Sooners beat every team on their schedule. They just did. And to put a two-loss Georgia team in the playoff over that, and I know there's the argument about, well, uh, is, it the, is it the four best teams or the four most deserving? Well, it doesn't matter which it is. If, if, you, if you look at this just on paper, it doesn't, it doesn't, you can't put Georgia in the playoff over them. The other thing about it is we knew Alabama was going to be the one seed, so Georgia couldn't be the four. They would have to be the three because they're not going to put a rematch in the first round. So... What you're saying here is not only is Georgia going to stay in the top four after losing a game the way they did, and Oklahoma is going to get kept out for winning the Big 12, you're also going to promote Georgia to number three? That's You just can't justify that. You can't The, the head of the, the college football playoff committee can't go on ESPN and say, well, here's why we did that, because Georgia looked good before they didn't. Like That's, that's impossible. So... This is a frustrating outcome for Georgia. They now know that they're going to the Sugar Bowl to face Texas. That's going to be a fun matchup. It's going to be a really fun matchup. It's on uh, the it's the last game on New Year's Day, so they'll be playing the late game in the Superdome. Uh, Georgia fans get to go back to New Orleans again. They were there earlier this year when they played LSU in Baton Rouge. It'll be a fun matchup. Again, this is a rebuilding year for Georgia, or a reloading year because they're not rebuilding; they're reloading. Next year is when the expectations should really be elevated. The Dogs should expect to make the playoff next season and the season after that. But this year was supposed to be the year where they kind of took a step back, reevaluated, got some guys in the right position, and then really made a run. So I wouldn't be frustrated if I'm a Georgia fan. This year would have been bonus. I think most people in the fan base understand that. 
and we'll see where they go next year. Now, as much as we wish they would, the numbers haven't lied during the Falcons' four-game losing streak, and we'll take a deeper dive into that. But first, let's get to Atlanta United, a Eastern Conference championship in the second year of existence. Though they won the series against the Red Bulls on aggregate goals, they technically lost 1-0 Thursday night in New Jersey. Didn't matter, because they still advanced, but they did get a loss. And according to Atlanta United voice Mike Conti, the five stripes are 6-0-1 after a loss this season, and their goal differential in those games are plus 10. So uh, Conti also said that this was technically the first postseason loss in franchise history since last year's loss to Columbus goes down as a draw on the record book because it went to penalty kicks. So a lot of firsts happening in this match, and there's there's some that we'll look back on fondly. We'll say, oh, yeah, that was their first ever loss in the playoffs. They still won the East, so it doesn't matter. And they got to raise a trophy. And I'm not sure if Tata's going to use that loss as a motivation, but he could if he wanted to. But that was a really fun match. Um, actually, it wasn't fun at all. Uh, it was disgusting. It was it was terrible. It was defensive. But that's what Atlanta United needed to do to win the East. They knew they needed to sit back. They didn't need to be aggressive. They didn't need to expose their defense. They didn't need to go in there and lose 3-0 and have this thing go to overtime. They just needed to sit back and play defense. And luckily, it was enough. And they're now moving on. They've slayed both New York teams. And... It's just sweet, you know, because New York has had Atlanta's number for a while in sports, and it seems like things are starting to turn. The Falcons have owned the Giants lately. Um, They've beaten them pretty solidly a couple times in the last couple of years. So, you know, they didn't beat them as much this year, but that's because they don't have a very good football team. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But this seems to be the the case. They're starting to turn a corner against against New York, and that's great. Now, we know who's coming to Atlanta to try to spoil our party in the MLS Cup, and that's the Portland Timbers. They won the MLS Cup in 2015, and they're a group that got hot at the right time. They are the five seed in the West. Uh, but they're every bit as tough a foe as the two New York City sides we've rolled through so far. Uh, they went through some good teams to win the West. They beat Dallas, they beat Seattle, and then they beat Kansas City. And the Western Conference, the second leg of the final, was thrilling. There were a lot of late goals. Uh, Portland scored late to, to clinch the uh, the West and it was a fun match to watch. We don't want that to happen against us, but that's the thing. This team can score late, and you have to worry about that. It's going to be a very a very uh, stressful 90 minutes in the MLS Cup. They have everything Atlanta does. Obviously, Atlanta has a slightly stronger roster. They have a little bit more speed. Uh, but these two, ma- these two sides played to a 1-1 draw at MBS back in June. Darlington Nagby went down with an injury in the middle of that match, which might have prevented a come-from-behind win. I don't know. Uh, but he's he, you need him in there to be a, at your best. Uh, the injury to Nagby, though, also helped Atlanta United bring in Eric Remedy, and that has made this midfield much, much better. And you basically have two all-stars at midfield, which is amazing. And that's what has really propelled this team to the Eastern Conference Championship. The one thing I have to mention, just because it's a thing, the Timbers wear those underdog masks that you saw last year when they win. Uh, the, the Eagles wore them last year against the Falcons when they beat them in the playoffs. Uh, the Timbers have done the same thing. So they're also embracing this underdog role. But I just don't want you guys to get PS- PTSD if they start breaking those out. <laughs> if, if, if uh, God forbid, they win this match and they start breaking them out on the trophy stand, I don't want you guys to get PTSD. I just wanted you guys to know about that. But... Uh, this is going to be a really fun match. This is not like the last two rounds of the Eastern Conference playoffs. This is a one-match take-all. 90 minutes, winner goes home with the MLS Cup, 
And uh, yes, they will play overtime. Yes, that will go to penalty kicks if nobody decides it in overtime. So we could be in for a long night at MBS, but it should be a really exciting night. Uh, the ticket market is insane if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, I've been trying to find tickets for this match. I, I'm at this point, I'm not confident that I will. I do think prices are going to collapse uh, later in the week because people are asking exorbitant prices for tickets. Uh, we'll see. But this is a championship match, and this is the first time since what 1999 that Atlanta's hosted uh one of their teams has been in a championship at home I think the 99 World Series was the last time and this is the last time that the city's hosted a championship I believe since the the Super Bowl in 2000 so hopefully the weather will hold out and uh, I'm recording this on Monday but the forecast is still iffy and we'll see uh but the last time a championship was played in Atlanta there was a nice storm, so hopefully that won't happen again. But I'm excited for this match. I think Atlanta has a very, very good chance to capture the MLS Cup. Send Tata Martino out on the right note. Uh, whoever we lose in the offseason to Europe or retirement, send them off on the right note. And uh, we'll have to rebuild next year. But this is the this is the time you want to get it. You want to get the championship now and, uh, and raise it, and let's have a parade. I'd be really excited for that. Now, the Braves made two big moves that would suggest they're building for the year 2020, not 2019. Until you look a little closer. And I'm going to explain more about that in just a minute. Let's get the nastiness out of the way first. The Falcons, my God, this team is just terrible. Lost to the Baltimore Ravens 26-16 in a game that wasn't even that close. Uh, the Falcons are now 0-4 against the AFC North. They've been swept by that division the last two times they played them. They play them you know, every four years. Uh, so, you know, 2014. They've also fallen to last place in the NFC South. That happened really fast, guys. So that's where we're at right now. We are the worst team in the South. Now, the Falcons did some things that we haven't seen in a while. We can talk about the good first, then we'll talk about the bad. The defense forced three fumbles in the first half. Uh, Lamar Jackson was just, he was just bad with the ball. He kept putting the ball on the ground. Uh, He was swinging it around. The Falcons took advantage of that. Vic Beasley ran a fumble back for a score. How about that? It was, that was the most exciting play I've seen all year, in my opinion. I haven't seen anything better than that. That was, that was fun to watch. Justin Hardy also had a nice punt return in the first half. So they did some things that you haven't seen in a while. They, they, they did some things on special teams. They did some things on defense, but they just didn't do enough, specifically on the offense. They had 87 yards of offense in the first half. So those big plays on special teams and defense were key to keeping them in this game. But right now, this team is poorly coached. The effort is lacking. Uh, Dan Quinn makes decisions in the middle of the game that don't make any sense. He did it again on Sunday. Uh, Then he admits at the end of the game in the press conference that they saw some declines in energy from their players, which basically is coach speak for, I saw some guys give up out there. And poorly coached and low effort is the best way I can put this right now. That's the, (laughs) I'm polishing the turd as much as I can because I could say a whole lot worse about this team. I mean, you go into four must-win games and you lose all four. What are you even doing here? Like, there's no urgency at all. Watch what the Saints are doing. This is what the Falcons should have been doing last year and this year. They got their hearts broken in the postseason, and they came back this year, and they said, F it, we're not going to mess around with anybody. We're going to blow people out. We're going to take no prisoners. We're going to leave no doubt. That's what the Falcons should be doing, and they're not. They're, They're leaving nothing but doubt, and that's what's frustrating. 
the issues are still there. And Deion Jones coming back and getting 15 tackles and a sack was nice. And you get flashes of that defense every now and then because he's back. You've got one of your captains back. You're still missing two of them. And that that defense is not getting any better than it, it was yesterday. It's not getting any better for the rest of the year. That's the best you're going to see because you're not getting Keanu Neal back. You're not getting Ricardo Allen back this season. The issues that I have a big problem with, the Falcons still can't block a soul on offensive line, and the blueprint has gotten clear in these last four weeks of how you beat this offense. How do you slow this offense down? You blitz the crap out of Matt Ryan because nobody can block, and Matt Ryan is not a mobile quarterback. He can't get outside of those those blitzers. He'll fall down. So there's nothing right now, there's nothing doing on offense. They haven't scored 20 points or more in a month. And it's because defenses have figured out how to shut down Matt Ryan. There used to be a situation where you, you know, if guys blitzed, Matt Ryan was really good against the blitz in the playoffs last year. He was like record numbers good because these guys blocked for just long enough to where he could actually step into a throw and make a pass. He can't even do that right now. He is backpedaling as soon as he gets the ball, basically, because these guys are right in his face immediately. The Falcons only crossed the 50-yard line on two drives the entire game on Sunday. They finished the day with 131 total yards and 82 penalty yards. This was their lowest offensive output in terms of yards gained since 1999. And the Falcons have had some really bad offenses between 1999 and now. Uh, That 2000 team was terrible. Those teams that were left behind when Michael Vick was uh, arrested and thrown in jail by Petrino bailed, those teams were bad. Doug Johnson had better performances in every single game he played in than Matt Ryan did yesterday. That's where we're at right now. That's reality. They have 60 rushing yards in the last two games combined. So for all those of you who said, and it's not only his fault, but for all those of you who said, Tevin Coleman's the future, can we trade Devontae Freeman? The answer's no, but also Tevin Coleman is not carrying this running game. And as I mentioned, you got to have an offensive line to create holes for you as well. Uh, I've seen this as well with Florida State this year. Uh, If you don't have an offensive line, you can't do anything. And right now the Falcons don't have an offensive line. So... At this point, you're just playing out the season, and what started as the most promising season in franchise history is likely to end with a below 500 record. That is reality, and I'm not sure how much longer this can continue. I know the injuries are a thing, and they are at all the key positions, and that's why they're not winning. I get it. But Dan Quinn's got to make better in-game decisions, and they're going to need to get some help next year. They're not as deep as we thought they were, and you start losing guys again next year, you are... We mentioned this five-year window that the Falcons have to win a Super Bowl. This was year three. Next year's year four. If you still haven't hoisted a Lombardi trophy then the next year, it's going to be desperation time. You're going to have to start figuring out a way to, to preserve the primes of Matt Ryan's career, Julio Jones's career, Devontae Freeman's career. You're going to start losing. I mean, Alex Mack's getting up there. You're going to have to find a replacement for him eventually. The defense is still going to be in its prime. That's fine. But you got to score points, and this offense is not scoring points right now. All right, let's finish with the Atlanta Braves. This was a big week for the Braves, and they got into the free agency uh, pool a lot faster than I thought they were going to. I thought they were going to sit back and make some offers on some big-name players. Nope, they just went for it. So they signed Brian McCann. Welcome back, BMAC. He is a catcher, if you didn't know, but I'm sure most of you know. They also signed Josh Donaldson, a third baseman. He'll be 33 at the start of the 2019 season, and he spent parts of last season with the Indians and the Blue Jays. Now, Donaldson hasn't played much the last few years because of injury, but when he's healthy, he can be really, really good. 
how good he was the 2015 American League MVP with the Blue Jays. And that's why the Braves are going to pay him $23 million for one season. Now, people had an issue with that. People said, why are we spending this much money on Donaldson when we want to be going for guys like Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, uh, finding a big-name pitcher, something like that? Well, the answer is you need him. You need a good third baseman if you're going to compete for a championship. Brian McCann is also going to be a reliable replacement for Kurt Suzuki, especially at just $2 million. He's They're getting a bargain with Brian McCann, so that's good news. But as the news came out earlier this week, or last week I should say, that the Braves had signed McCann and Donaldson, there was some discussion that happened on my page and, and also just, you know, I verbally spoke about this with some friends of mine. Uh, and, and I think the consensus consensus was that the news about these signings was kind of underwhelming at best. And it indicated that this team believed they were still a year off at worst. If, if you take this at face value, you know, maybe they're saying, well, this is, this team is going to be, we're building for 2020. We're not building for 2019. Uh, we realize we still have a lot of holes we need to fill before we're competing for a World Series. The fan base wants to hear, we're going for it in 2019, and we have the pieces here to do that. I think this might actually be a sign that they feel they're a little bit closer than the fans think. The fans the fans took these moves as, as we're building for 2020. I think they might be building for 2019. I think Alex Anthopoulos is is filling holes that needed to be filled and when you dig deeper into the numbers it becomes clear first of all the most obvious thing that i see with these two moves is that these guys add much needed postseason experience to the roster they've played in a combined 68 postseason games and i bet the 2017 braves had that much postseason experience combined among the entire 25-man roster brian mccann has a ring Josh Donaldson has a 275 postseason batting average, which is also the same as his career batting average. So he doesn't fall off at all in the postseason. He's not exactly Mr. October, but his average is the same in the postseason, which is good. That's what you want to see. So simply put, there was nobody in that Braves dugout, not even the manager, because he was in his first postseason experience too as the manager of the Braves, who had the playoff experience to calm down these youngsters when they were in their first postseason series. They have that now. They brought two guys in that can say, hey, it's just another game. Go out there and play. Calm down. You're fine. Your teammates have your back. Just go out there and play baseball. So in terms of playoff experience, the Braves are now closing the gap with the Dodgers and Cubs. They're not there yet. The Dodgers and the Cubs have been in the playoffs for year after year after year, except for the Cubs last year because they choked. But the Dodgers have been in it for many, many years in a row, and those teams don't get rattled in big moments because they've been there before. They have stocked their roster with with guys that have plenty of playoff ex- plenty of playoff experience and they can make plays when they need to. Now, dig even deeper into the numbers. Don't just look at games played in the playoffs or the playoff experience. Having a Donaldson in the middle of this batting order would have probably helped against the Dodgers because some of those young players who won you the division completely disappeared in the playoffs. And I probably don't have to tell you this, but I, this is a reminder. This team did not hit the ball at all in the postseason against the Dodgers. Ozzy Albies batted 200. Charlie Culberson batted 167. Nick Markakis, who isn't a youngster, but in terms of playoff experience, he kind of is. He batted 083 in the cleanup spot, which is where Donaldson will probably be. And Camargo was 0 for 15 in the playoffs. And Camargo is probably going to lose his starting role to Donaldson, assuming Donaldson is healthy because they're both third basemen. Now, Camargo can play other positions, which is good news for him. Maybe he'll push 
you know, that shortstop position to be a little bit better than it was last year. But we'll see. And, 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 you know, even Acuna, he only batted 188 in the playoffs last year at the leadoff spot. So aside from a very loud grand slam, he was hardly productive. You need your leadoff hitter to do better than 188 in a playoff series. So when it's time to go for it in terms of a World Series run, you can't risk the team going on the road and scoring zero runs in consecutive games in a best-of-five series as the Braves did in L.A. last year. And that's the thing that I think Alex Anthopoulos is trying to prevent. When you eventually have a better record than the team that you're playing in the NLDS, you're going to get home field advantage. And let's say the Braves win the first two games of that series at home. They can't go on the road and post two goose eggs at the plate. They just can't do it. You have to be able to steal the game on the road as the Dodgers did last year in Atlanta. You have to fill this. You have to, you have to follow this Dodgers mold of, 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 of scoring runs also having the pitching, but it's really important that you can, that you can win that series on the road. You don't want series coming home for a decisive best of five or a best of seven. So you've got to bring in guys that have the experience of playing in a, in a boisterous road environment. They can get hits. They can, they can make the players realize that it's just another game and you've got to go out there and perform if you want to advance in the playoffs and if you want to be a world series contender. So I think these are great moves. I think Anthopoulos did a good job with these. I still expect them to bring in a big name pitcher. I expect them to be in the sweepstakes for Bryce Harper. These two moves did not break the bank. These aren't massive signings, but these are guys that they needed in that clubhouse. So we'll see what they do the rest of the uh, the offseason, but free agency is about to get going, and I was happy to see the Braves jump in there right off the bat. All right, that was the Breslanta Report. Thank you so much for listening. As I mentioned already, please subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. My email address, if you'd like to weigh in on anything you see this week in Atlanta sports, is breslanta at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And please also visit breslanta.com for the latest. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a great week.